All right, indie or AAA? I'm gonna go indie. Free to play or pay to play? I'm gonna go free to play. iOS or Android? Uh, iOS. You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf from Iron Source. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing games. This week's episode, we're going to be talking all things gamer motivation, what makes gamers tick, why they play, and what keeps them playing. Here to talk about that is Nick Yee, who's the co-founder and analytics lead of Quantic Foundry, which is a firm dedicated to researching gamer motivation. So Nick, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. So maybe let's sort of start with um, having you tell us a little bit about yourself. You have, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, a strong background in psychology. Um, You have a BA in psychology and a PhD in communications from Stanford. You also have a very impressive background in games. Um, and you were a senior research scientist at Ubisoft, um, which I, I guess connects to what you're doing today. So what made you decide to apply kind of psychology and communication to games? Were you, were you a, a passionate gamer and this was the dream? <laughs> kind of. I think that's a story I like to tell. So I've, I've always been a gamer. I'm more of a strategy gamer, more of a turn-based strategy gamer. Um, I think the turning point for me was in, in college when I was a psych undergrad at Haverford and I was a junior and these two seniors a year ahead of me, uh, we shared the, the same thesis advisor and they were doing a, a study to see whether there were personality differences between gamers of different game genres. I think they picked, um, the, an RTS and MMO and an FPS. And so they were looking at gamers in these different genres and, and comparing them. And at that point, this was 98, 99, and EverQuest had just come out. And none of, neither of them and none of us had ever played an MMO. So the psych department went and got us a copy of EverQuest <laughs> so that they could try it. And I got involved because I was the, the, the tech lab assistant at that point. So I installed and, and checked and logged into the game for them. Um, and so we all tried it, including the professor. And of course, I was the only one who liked the game. <laughs> um, so I kept playing EverQuest and um, realized that there was something really interesting there that should be studied. And I started doing survey research of EverQuest in 99 uh, that snowballed into a larger uh, project, the Daedalus project, where I kept blogging about the findings. So as Dark Age of Camelot came out, um, City of Heroes came out, World of Warcraft came out. I kept serving those gamers and kept putting, you know, those those blog posts together. I uh, decided that if I was working full time at that point and still doing the survey research, I might as well go to grad school in it. And at that point, there were no game research programs. This was still so new, and so I ended up studying communication at Stanford, where a big part of my research was actually in VR. So this is 2003, 2007, before the current wave of, of VR interest. I was doing a lot of VR research then, putting uh, participants in taller bodies, shorter bodies, more attractive faces, less attractive faces to see how they would react <laughs> in a virtual environment. And I kept doing the gaming stuff along the side. So it was around that time that um, Nick Ducheneau at the Palo Alto Research Center, which is also in uh, Palo Alto, uh, reached out and said, hey, you know, we see you're doing these interesting things in gaming. Would you like to be a summer intern at at Park? So I joined their team 
and they were collecting large-scale data from World of Warcraft using a third-party script. So they were using uh, the Lua script to collect data from you know hundreds of thousands of gamers and their their levels. You know what zones they were in. Were they in a guild? Are they playing in the same zone with a member of their guild? And so they were tracking this enormous amount of data because this was suddenly possible in, in online games where you know someone in the pre-internet days of someone's playing a game, the game developer really doesn't know what they're doing because there's no you know connection. But suddenly with games like EverQuest and World of Warcraft, you had this deluge of data. And so uh, we transitioned into this, this space where we were addressing very social science questions, but with the benefit of large-scale data. Um, and that was really the underpinning of a lot of the work that we do now. So Nick Ducheneau is my business partner at Quantic Foundry. We've actually been working together for 14 years now through three different companies. And, you know, we're kind of like a married work couple where we have very brief work meetings because there's very little we need to talk about anymore. Uh, we agree uh, intuitively on a lot of the, the issues that we need to be talking about or dealing with. And so, you know, at Quantic Foundry, we've essentially taken that approach of how do we answer gaming motivation questions about gamers with very social science approaches, but with a large data set. Um, and so that's how, you know, it started and, and the trajectory that we've been on. And how common is this approach um, or focus in gaming? Do you have uh, senior research scientist positions at many large gaming companies? Are Is every sort of game developer sitting down and asking himself, okay, I need to work with a research firm or I need to do some sort of... Um, mashup of psychology and and science not that psychology isn't a science before building game or do you find that sort of game gamer motivation research is still a pretty nascent field it's it's a mix of both i think we're there have always been you know motivation models lurking around but i think we're just getting to the point where people are taking motivation and and quantifying motivations in a standardized uh, way where they're leveraging a a standardized vocabulary and so forth. It's also, you know, one of the biggest changes in the past 10 years in the game industry is also having these established roles in user research and user experience and consumer insights that tap into this intersection of user psychology and gamer behavior in different ways. You know, so people on the user research side, they're more often in a playtesting role. They'll bring gamers, playtesters into labs and study in depth about, you know, which points of the game do they get frustrated or bored that they run to something that they don't understand to tweak those, the user interface, the, the game flow, how the voice acting, the storyline and so forth. Um, there are people in consumer insights groups who may be looking at this more on a marketing standpoint on, on if you're interested in this genre or that subgenre, what do the gamers out there, you know, care about, you know, what are the natural player segments in that space? And then there are people, you know, the data scientists, the more analytics folks who are looking at this through a, uh, a server side metrics lens. So they're looking at all the, the actual gameplay behavior, the number of virtual hugs, the guns that people are using, the, the, how often people engage with the storyline and so forth and making inferences that way. So there, there are a lot of different roles that kind of intersect with this space of big data and psychology in the context of games. And it's been really exciting to see 
you know, that's growing. And I think even though there are a lot of established roles in this space, a lot of the underlying approaches and methodologies and taxonomies are still emerging and growing. So it's such an exciting time to be doing this work. Definitely. Um, so let's let's move to Quantic Foundry itself uh, and what you do today, which you sort of touched on briefly. But for our audience, maybe can you give us a, a brief breakdown of Quantic Foundry and, and what it is exactly you do? So there are kind of two big slices of things that we do. Um, we have a motivation model that we've developed using you know rigorous psychology research uh, approaches and so we have a large data set of almost half a million gamers who've come through and taken our motivation assessment on the the 12 motivations that we'll talk about later on in the podcast and so one big slice of the work that we do is leverage this large data set where gamers tell us about their motivations their demographics the the specific game titles and franchises that they like playing and we're able to generate reports on them. So, you know, gamers of Civ 6 or gamers of uh, Skyrim, what's their motivation profile? What's their demographic profile? What are other games that they, they enjoy playing? We're able to compare and contrast different game titles within the same genre. So if we're interested in the audience space around Skyrim or Civilization, here are the 20 other games and we can create 2D maps that show uh, here are the other games that are the most similar. Uh, perhaps if we're looking at two different games, here's a potential game title that's a bridge in terms of motivations between uh, these two other games. We're able to look at the distances between different game audiences. So here are games that are more similar in terms of the motivation profile. Uh, here are games that are further away, and they're further away along the dimension of storytelling, for example. Um, so that's one big part of what we do, just leveraging our existing data set and creating custom reports based on that. Uh, the other part is more custom work that we do. So in addition to the video game motivation model that we have, we also have a board game motivation model. And we've also worked with our clients to develop custom models. So for example, we have a client that does tabletop games. And so our video game model is an, a good fit for what they do. So we work with them to come up with a tailored model specifically for tabletop gamers in the genre that they're working on. We've also done uh, research on brick and mortar game hobby store owners to understand their motivations for running a game store. So, you know, we have, we, we have an existing data set, but we also have this established methodology of creating motivation models, of creating segments of gamers and even hobby store owners, for example. Uh, and so depending on the needs of the client, we look at, you know, the answers that we can address for them. Do you, I mean, this is sort of just occurring to me now, do you, do you see yourself perhaps um, expanding this motivational model building service outside of the game vertical? Yeah, so one of the, one of our back burner projects that Nick and I have been chatting for, for a while is coming up with a life aspirations model. So it would sit somewhere between a, a personality model like the big five and, uh, and a needs model. So things like how important is uh, acquiring new knowledge or experiencing art, uh, acquiring material wealth, having children, having a family. So uh, a, a motivation model that's centered more on life aspirations as a whole that we can then uh, explore alongside the, mode, the the gamer model, um, you know. So that's one 
project that we're, we're actually working on. We're working on the draft of what that survey would look like. And then we're hoping to gather data on that and come up with a motivation model similar to what we have for for the video game stuff. And sort of, um, did you, I mean, in a way you've talked about why you started Quantic Foundry from the perspective of you you love the kind of social science approach to looking at, at gamer behavior. But did you did you feel when you when you sort of opened it that this was also answering kind of a, a pain point in the industry? Um, was it more, we feel this is interesting, we're gonna start it and then see what kind of clients we come along the way? I think, you know, early on, I mean, expect any any startup company knows you have to be very flexible and adaptable to to exploring problems in, in the in the market. But one issue that we had seen in the, the companies we've worked with before, Quantic Foundry, um, was in, at, around, uh, Around 2010 to through 2015, there was this proliferation of dashboard services within the game industry of being able to quickly track the the health, the you know all these KPI acronyms, your 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 ARPUs, your uh, the the number of you know gamers, your monetization rates, and so forth within a game. But one problem that we saw in a lot of game companies was that they had these very sophisticated, these very fancy dashboards. That was showing the health of their system, but when things went, but when things went wrong, inevitably, uh, when you know when one of these metrics starts declining, these dashboards had a lot of trouble surfacing what they could do about the problem or, or what was causing the problem to begin with, you know. So they ended up being these dashboards that were showing red flags, but that they couldn't directly help you solve, resolve the red flag or how to make the problem go away or ease the problem. And so it's really in that space that we started, you know when we were at Ubisoft and, and other places of seeing this problem and being able to take on a more social science approach, looking at server-side data, coming up with hypotheses to test um, and going about, you know, essentially this detective work in, uh, in you know, in a rigorous way and you know, testing those hypotheses, looking at, you know, player segments in a game, the different motivations that were driving them, uh, and seeing if they they synced up with problems in monetization, problems in retention, and so forth. So I think early on, you know, one of the goals that we were trying to do was to bridge um, the server side metrics. That there were a lot of dashboards, and there were a lot of established uh, KPI tools for, and methodologies for answering the why behind the what. You know, so we can see these these lines in the dashboard but can we understand who these gamers are you know what are ways if there's a segment in our in our game that is losing interest you know what are the best bets in terms of new mechanics and features that will engage them and so forth um and so we were trying a lot of things you know early on uh, in terms of you know what could we what were the best ways that we could leverage our data to address those questions and so things like doing segment analyses of a particular game audience at the title level or at a at a genre level was one thing that uh, a lot of, that resonated with a lot of our clients. So that that turns out to be one of the things what, that we do a lot of of now. Uh, but it wasn't obvious when we first started the company, even though we knew that was the direction that we wanted to go into. Uh-huh. And were there a lot of um... Or sort of, was there a lot of existing literature or information on gamer motivation or, or player taxonomy when you guys started out? Yeah, I think you know the 
there were a lot of different models floating around and actually that was part of the the problem so there were a lot of uh, observation based intuition based models uh, from you know from game developers from game designers that were floating around you know based on uh, their own experiences in uh, th their own games or in the genres of games that they were working on. There were a lot of academic models that were developed using, you know, robust methodologies, but they tended to, to be geared more towards what a psychology cared about than what a game designer cared about. So there were models with motivations like violence catharsis, which a psychologist would care about. You know, are you using a game to release your pent up aggression? that is totally uninteresting to a game designer. Like, what do you, you know, what do you do with that at a mechanics level? There were also a lot of, you know, genre specific models, you know, so, uh, you know, we had an MMO specific model. There are, you know, MUD specific models and FPS specific models that don't generalize well, you know, broadly to across genres. So the real problem was really reconciling all these models that were addressing different things but that for one reason or another were not suited or not standardized to be used uh, in, a, in a game industrial setting and figuring out what to do from that point. And so that's really one of the things that we set, that we set out to do was how do we, what do we do with all these models floating around? What's a robust, empirical, rigorous way of sorting out a lot of the the inconsistencies or the contradictions in these models and coming up with a standardized model that makes sense for, for gamers and for game designers. Mm -hmm. And and let's let's talk about how it works. Um, you guys say you have an empirical model which identifies gamer motivation. How did you build the model um, and how did what's called factor analysis, which maybe you can explain, uh, factor, in, factor into it? Sure, so factor analysis is a statistical method and in a nutshell, it identifies how preferences and attitudes do and do not cluster together. So whether we're talking about uh, people's shopping preferences in the supermarket, the, the shows that people watch on Netflix or, and Hulu, or the reasons why people play games, it's a way of identifying the underlying motivation clusters that drive people to express themselves in whatever behavior in the domain that they're choosing. Um, so for example, in, uh, in, a, in some of the existing models that I mentioned earlier, some people may say, oh, people who like socializing, you know, the social care bears, they're the exact opposites of the cutthroat competitive PVP players. Uh, and so in all of these models, there are these underlying assumptions of not only here are the different motivations, but, you know, oftentimes how these motivations intersect and interact and relate to each other. So there are a lot of these hypotheses, essentially, that were floating around uh, in these underlying models. And factor analysis, in a sense, is kind of like celebrity deathmatch. It's a way of kind of pitting these models against each other. If we could throw all these theories and taxonomies in the same pot, let's test it empirically with data from real gamers and see what comes out. So for example, is it the case that people who like socializing and chatting and teamwork, are they, you know, are, is that negatively correlated with the drive for competition? And so we took all these existing models, we identified the common motivations that they were that proposed, and we came up with a pilot survey of about 60, 70 pilot survey items. So survey questions like how important is it for you to level up quickly, to play the game at the highest level of difficulty, to uh, uh, engage with an elaborate plot and interesting characters in a game. 
And so we had 60 to 70 questions of like, like this, and we asked them on a five point scale from not important at all to extremely important. And then the factor analysis could look at all these questions and identify, oh, you, you're asking these 60 questions, but underlying this, there are only five clusters of motivations that group together. So maybe the desire to help new players is highly correlated with the, uh, the, desire to, the desire for teamwork and the desire for chatting with people. So there's actually this social cluster uh, in here that, that is a more, more concise parsimonious representation of the motivations. And so we, we used, you know, we ran the factor analysis, collected data from uh, tens of thousands of gamers when we started, and then uh, iterated on that model. We would replace survey items that were doing poorly. As more and more data came in, we would rerun the factor analysis until a stable model emerged. And so that's, our, that's where our current model comes from. We have this model with 12 motivations, uh, and it's based on factor analysis on a large data set. So we currently have... Uh, almost half a million gamers who've come through and taken this profile. So it's a, it's a very robust model. So so that, that right, that's the question. How did you guys manage to get um, nearly half a million gamers to take a survey? Um, which, or, or actually maybe just run us through how you, how you sort of collected the data and how you got gamers to, to weigh in. Yeah, so we started with a, a small panel of about a thousand gamers, you know, uh, and we generated a good enough starting model based on that. We then put together a uh, an online app where gamers could come and take a five minute survey and get a report back on how their motivations rank compared to all the other gamers who had taken the survey. And so it was this very long report. It starts off with this radar chart of your your motivations, and then there's a very long text readout that steps reach motivation. And goes through, you know, here's what it means. Here are the, the mechanics that it's related to. Here are the games that you typically see these motivations in. Um, and we made that report easy to share on social media. So very quickly, we got viral traction of gamers who got their profile and they wanted to see how their friends compared with them. And so they would share it on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, and so we, we started this tool in the summer of 2015. And we got some, you know, hits on big gaming tech websites like Ars Technica, like Geek and Sundry, that would start off these long chains of viral sharing on social media. Uh, and so oftentimes it would be someone on Facebook saying, hey, I, here's my profile. I want to see yours. Go take this, go take this app. Uh, and so that's how we collected the data. And that's how we still collect this data. This tool is still live. And so we're constantly refreshing the, the database with with new traffic through. So, so in a way, the, the motivation, you had to sort of build a motivational model of gamers in general in order to prompt them to fill out a, a survey. You sort of had to find the key to motivating gamers, not just within games, but outside of them too. Correct, yeah. So we, we did a, use a bootstrap approach to collect that initial small data set. It primed the pump for this online app. And then as more and more gamers came through, we would, we would refresh the, the model. We would update the underlying norms so that players get a more and more accurate uh, view of their profile, yes. And what's sort of the, the demographic uh, and geographic breakdown of your data? Yeah, so the, the tool is called a gamer motivation profile. So there's a bias towards more core PC console gamers. So we have about 80% uh, men, 20% women as a breakdown. For a long time, the app was English only. So most of our respondents come from Northern America, the Western EU, 
the Southeast Asian English speaking countries, and then smaller pockets from elsewhere around the world. So other Southeast Asian countries in South America and Eastern EU and so forth. And we've started to localize the app to other languages. So we have it in simplified Chinese now. And so we're, we're constantly working to get a bigger geographic reach for the data. Got it. And, and now perhaps we move on to, to the, the good stuff, um, the motivational types themselves. So you guys have identified 12 uh, motivational types, which you then have clustered into six pairs. Um, at the risk of, of overcomplicating things, um, can you sort of give us a high level description of each pair? Um, and the motivations within. Yeah, so we, we found these 12 distinct motivations and they're in these pairs because they're highly correlated. And, you know, I'll send you like the visual chart for this so you can share this with your, your podcast listeners so it's easy to follow. Um, so most of these should feel fairly straightforward because they're drawn from existing taxonomies. So under the action pair is the desire for destruction. So the appeal of chaos and mayhem, guns and explosions as well as the, the appeal of excitement. So fast paced action with a lot of surprises and thrills. And again, these two things are paired together because typically gamers who, who care a lot about one typically care a lot about the other. And if they don't care about one, they typically don't care about the other. So at the highest level, you know, they're paired together because of this underlying statistical logic. The next pair is a social pair. It's both the appeal of working against other players competition as well as the appeal of working with other players. So being on the same team, chatting, interacting, a sense of community. You know, so before we were talking about how, you know, in a lot of these existing, in some of these uh, previous existing models, there were assumptions made that that competition was exact polar opposite of community. But when we actually looked at the data, they were actually highly correlated. They're on the same spectrum that people who are social or just social, they want to work with other gamers and interact with them in many different ways, whether it's, you know, being on the same team or being on different teams. To them, it's all social interaction. It's all this social adrenaline rush. Uh, the third pair is mastery. It's more long-term uh, oriented game appeal. So whether that's a challenge, so practicing a game over and over again so you can defeat the biggest, baddest boss, or the appeal of strategies. So thinking and planning ahead and making complex decisions. Then we have achievement, which is different kinds of point systems, whether that's points just for the sake of points, a sense of completion. So collecting all the stars, all the trophies, collecting all the collectibles, uh, talking to all the NPCs and so forth, or power with instrumental meaning behind it. So getting a character with a high level, getting equipment with high stats. Uh, immersion is the fifth pair. It's different ways of being a part of the game world, whether that's the psychological sense of fantasy. So being someone else somewhere else or a story. So interacting with an elaborate plot, engaging with interesting characters with their own backstories and quirks and psychoses. And then creativity is the, the last pair. It's playing the game in the broadest sense of the word whether that's design, so expressing your individuality through customizing your avatar, your spaceship, your city, or discovery, so exploring the geography of the game world, uh, tinkering with objects, uh, experimenting to see what happens when you combine two objects together. So, you know, briefly, that's, that's what those 12 motivations look like. So as, as gamers come through our survey, we get their scores on each of these, these 12 motivations, and we're able to pair it with 
their demographics and the, the games they play, as I mentioned earlier. And how often um, can you can you demonstrate or inhabit two different main categories, sort of like paired categories? Can you sort of like both action and chaos and also creativity? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we tend to think of the the motivations as the constellation of your interests. And we, for every gamer that comes through, we get their inclination for each of these motivations. And gamers tend, tend to score high in one or two of these, these pairs, very low on one of these, one or two of these pairs, and then average on the rest. And it's typically, uh, as the same with personality, it's the, the ways you're different from everyone else that most differentiates you and most defines you as a person, as a gamer. You know, so people... Uh, you know, who are, you know, very extreme introverts or extreme extroverts, those are their traits that most stand out, that are most salient when we interact with them. And similarly, when you talk to gamers, you know, they may care a lot about, you know, strategy and challenge and care very little about social interaction. And that's what, you know, defines their game, their profile uh, and, and so forth. So very much so. So, Gamers can fit into more than one of these these categories and pairs. And do motivation pairs um, correspond tend to correspond to specific genres, or does it sort of is there an even spread across? We typically think about it more as a there's more like a a fingerprint profile of different genres. So genres uh, there are many game genres that that will score high on social, for example. So first person online first person shooters. MMOs, these are two genres that both score high on social, um, you know, but at that point, you may have one that care, you know, the first person shooters came, care more about mayhem and, and thrills, whereas the MMO ga- gamers care more about uh, progression. So completion and power and accumulating, grinding for powerful characters and, and weapons, for example. So every game genre tends to have its own distinct fingerprint of motivations that score high, motivations that are low, and so forth. So there, there, there are all these linkages, but not at a, a single motivation level, but at a holistic uh, profile level across these motivations. Mm-hmm. And what, what have been some of the, the most surprising discoveries you've made since building the model? You talked about the um, sort of coming to understand that, in fact, competition and community are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but what are some of the other um, weird and wonderful things you guys have discovered? Um, you know, so one thing we talk a lot about is is age differences. And the reason we do that is because in the gaming industry, whether it's among gamers or game developers, we often talk more about gender difference, differences, about, you know, how female gamers are different from male gamers and what design for female games would look like. But in our data set, one thing that's always struck us from the beginning, and even in our previous research, is the variance uh, among older and younger gamers. And presumably these changes happen as gamers age. And in competition, for example, uh, the age difference in competition is about twice as large as it is between male and female gamers. So one of the things we, we point out a lot in our talks, unsurprisingly, you know, younger gamers care more about competition. There's a very steep, steep decline from the 20s to the 30s. The, the decline slows down, but doesn't quite fully, you know, hit the trough until people are in their 40s and 50s and above. Um, you know, and so one of the things we talk about in some of our earlier talks is, you know, we spent all this time talking about gender differences, but really the the 
the elephant in the room that we should be talking about is age of uh, these very significant differences in, in motivation changes as people age because we're in this generation of of gamers who, you know, we started off gaming when we were kids and we're aging beyond age 35. We're not going to stop gaming. So, but the game industry as a whole, the AAA titles particularly are geared towards gamers between 15 to 30. So what do games look like for people who have aged beyond that, that core genre? There are going to be more and more of gamers in that segment and gamers are going to continue gaming in nursing homes. Um, you know, what does design in this era of gaming look like, uh, you know, give, given those, those differences? You know, we've also been able to confirm and disconfirm some of the, the stereotypes behind uh, gender differences. So, yes, there is a difference in competition, but there isn't a difference really very much in community. So desire for chatting, interaction and teamwork. You know, so there used to be this stereotype that, oh, your, your female gamers are the more social care bears in games like World of Warcraft. But that's not true. You know, again, social is social. So gamers who, who care a lot about, you know, competition, they also tend to care a lot about socializing, which is why, you know, social rating guilds happen. You know, it's, it's the combination of all, all those social inclinations coming together, you know, in, in this very high-powered format. Um, you know, so being able to to really provide data behind our assumptions around gender and age, confirming some, but challenging others that we've had as well. You know, we've also looked at data comparing different regions. So comparing uh, mainline Chinese gamers with gamers in the US uh, and looking at some of the differences. So we found, for example, that gamers in China, they care a lot more about competition and completion than gamers in the US. Um, and so that provides these high-level implications for design and for game companies who are bringing games in China into the U.S. or U.S. into China. And what are some of the the translation problems, you know, between the two cultures? That it's it's not just that these games rely on different lore that you've gained in China that rely on martial arts and uh, stories like Journey to the West and The Monkey King. Uh, and whereas, you know, games in the West focus on Lord of the Rings and and Tolkien-like uh, mythology. So there's not just a translation problem in terms of the underlying lore and mythology, but there are also these significant differences at the high level in terms of gaming motivations. And those play a large role in, you know, mechanics and features that Chinese gamers care a lot about that U.S. gamers don't care as much about and having those being obstacles in that translation between games across cultures. Mm. And, and how do game developers... Um or companies use you guys? Um, do they sort of come to you before they're thinking about building their next title? Or for example, uh, when they're thinking about taking a game to a foreign market, um, sort of what, what are your common use cases? Yeah, we work a lot with uh, game companies in the early concept stage. So they're thinking of making a game in a genre that they're not familiar with making, they're thinking of making a game that's a mashup of two different genres. And so we can generate audience reports of the motivation profiles, the demographic profiles of, you know, games that they think they're modeling their game against. And so we're able to do early tests. Like uh, they think that there are these four games that are very similar, that in the same space that they're trying to target. We pull up the reports and we're like, oh, there's actually an odd one out. This game 
uh, of the four that you're thinking of is very different, or there may actually be two and two. So they're actually two very distinct profiles uh, within the genre. And so they have to, they have to pick, oh, you, it's very difficult to focus on these two profiles at the same time. Here's what their demographics look like. Here's what they care about. Here are the differences. And you probably have to pick one instead of, of the two. Uh, we do a lot of segment analysis, uh, as I mentioned earlier. So game companies, uh, either in uh, from a marketing perspective or in a design perspective of trying to understand, hey, we're trying to target this genre or gamers in this franchise. What are the distinct gamer types? So there may be, you know, 40% of the gamers who really are more competitive PvP types. There's, you know, 30% that cares more about the storyline and being immersed in a, in a different character and so forth. And so we're able to look at the data, look at a particular title, a franchise, do that segment analysis, provide these empirical uh, personas of here's what the underlying segments look like, what they care about, the other games that they're currently playing, the features that they care about, uh, and their proportion with this game space. So you know, from a marketing perspective, it helps them tailor messages specifically you know for these archetypes so for example there may be this very idiosyncratic persona that cares about storytelling and strategy so gamers who like fire emblem or crusader kings they like that interplay of you know very quirky characters with unique storylines and romance interests but in this highly strategic decision making information rich standpoint and so if you're a marketer and you know this then you can come up with uh, an ad or a marketing message that really tailors, you know, towards this this segment to attract them to to a new game that that has a, a large segment of these gamers, for example. Um, you know, we also work with uh, games that that are established, so for example, with clients who have an existing game, but they're trying to understand what are new features to build next. What if they're built working on a sequel? Uh, you know, what are the, the segments or the mechanics that they need to worry the most about um, tracking, you know, what needs are, what motivational needs are, are not fulfilled in their audience. So, you know, here's a game, here's a segment that cares a lot about, you know, competition, but is their need for competition actually satisfied by the current game makeup? So, you know, we, we work with clients, you know, whether at the conception stage or after they've launched uh, testing new game ideas or really coming up with a concrete market strategy and so forth. And and my last question is a little bit more, um, I guess, broad. The tagline on your website says the the science of gamer motivation. Um, and certainly there's plenty of science and research and modeling um, involved, but we're also dealing with human beings and it's human beings having fun. Um, so sort of how much uh, of working out what makes gamers tick is science and how much is, for want of a better word, art? Yeah, I think, I think that's a great question. And I think so much of what we do at Quantic and, and what game researchers do hinges on the fact that we're more often than not gamers ourselves, that we're asking questions and coming up with a language that makes sense for both gamers and designers that especially when you run surveys for gamers, it's very clear whether you're a gamer yourself or whether you know, you're know you a non-gamer making assumptions about what gamers do and the things that they like. And especially you know, interpreting findings, especially you know, gamer segments requires an intuition about different game genres. So you know, earlier on, I mentioned you know, we stumbled across this, this segment of gamers who like both storytelling 
and strategy. And, you know, without, you know, if you didn't previously know about Fire Emblem or Crusader Kings and knowing about the kind of gameplay that's possible in those games and therefore making sense of this segment as a whole, you know, it's very difficult to put together a report for a client or coming up with a, with a narrative and a story of what this segment means and, and what, what they, they might go after in, in a new game. And game research as a whole is this, uh, this unending torrent of data. It's inherently a triage problem. It's exact opposite of running a, you know, a classic lab study in a, in a psychology lab where there's, you know, you're running this very focused lab experiment and you already know the statistical test you're going to run before you start collecting the data. In game research, it's exact opposite. You have this, this unending torrent of data. You have, uh, you can ask any question that you like. And it's like you're in an emergency room and there's this flood of wounded people coming in. The hard part is knowing what questions to prioritize. And and how to follow up on an unexpected finding in the limited time that you have, because even in one game, uh, one game's data uh, alone, like one year of data from one game, there's more data there than a data scientist can work on for the rest of their life, just because of sheer, you know, with the sheer number of variables and the, and the large number of gamers in there. And that's the art part of all this, of having the intuition, the instinct of knowing what questions to ask, which questions are important, what to follow up on and what to, to not follow up on because it's likely a red herring or or likely to be to be not fruitful. And I think that's what that's what makes us so exciting that it's really a blend of for a lot of game researchers, you know, game research conferences are so much fun because we're all, you know, we're all gamers. It's always a blend of, you know, our own interest in games and talking about, you know, what are new methodologies, new approaches that we can, you know, come up to, to study gamers uh, and the evolving, you know, techniques that we're, we're coming up with. Um, and it's, it's a super exciting part of the industry to be in at this point. And makes for a very interesting podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh, and appeals to my um, latent and long forgotten academic tendencies. Um, thank you very much for being with us on the show today, Nick. It's been super, super interesting. And thank you everyone for listening. Tune in next episode for more game industry experts talking all things game related here on Level Up. Super Mario or Sonic? I'm going to go with Sonic. Game Boy or Xbox? Game Boy. Hyper Casual or Casual? Casual. Backstreet Boys or NSYNC? Oh, wow, they're so mixed up in my head. Now I'm going to go with NSYNC. Wow, I thought you were going to go for a both there. <laughs>